I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. So welcome to Super Soul Sunday with Tara Westover. This is a first as we're taping as we sail uh, through this gorgeous uh, Caribbean on the O Magazine Holland America Cruise Getaway for Girls Getaway. I like that, right? We're in the ship's world stage theater. And so, welcome everybody. Been out on the beach today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to be doing it. You know, for me, this book, Educated, is liberating for so many people. And I use the word liberation because... I think no matter what is going on in somebody's life now, I, you know, people call me and they say, I'm going through this, or I'm going that. I go, get educated. They go, what? I go, just get the book, educated. It'll help you. Just get educated. Because I know that one of the reasons why people are responding to it is, is, in a big way is because you so- showed so much of your own courage, so much of your own vulnerability and strength to find your voice and to find a way out. For me, the book is really, I, I, I said to my producers, it's like in three parts. It's like living in the shadow of life and on that mountain, then coming out of the shadows and then being able to reject the shadow and the darkness of the past in order to embrace the light. That's how I see it. It's an interesting way to put it. I think I would put it differently, but with the same kind of general thrust, I guess. I think, for me, I think it was a little bit about rejecting the past, but it was also about trying to find the parts of the past that were important to me that I wanted to hold on to, Mm -hmm. and the good memories that I wanted to have and I wanted to keep, um, and the positive feelings about people in my life that had been good to me while also kind of reconciling with the more negative things and trying to think, how do I move forward with both of those things? You know, with the fact that I had a relationship with my family that was in some ways beautiful and loving and in some ways chaotic and destructive and trying trying to take the good and move forward with it, but also not really allowing the bad to dominate the future, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, makes all the sense. I want to start by reading actually from uh, the intro to the book. It really sets the stage of your childhood. I love this, you say, I had grown up preparing for the days of abomination, watching for the sun to darken, for the moon to drip as if with blood. I spent my summers bottling peaches and my winters rotating supplies. When the world of men failed, my family would continue on unaffected. I'd been educated in the rhythms of the mountain, rhythms in which change was never fundamental, only cyclical. The same sun appeared every morning, swept over the valley and dropped behind the peak. The snows that fell in winter always melted in the spring. Our lives were a cycle, the cycle of the day, of the seasons, circles of perpetual change, that when complete, nothing had changed at all. I believe my family was part of this immortal pattern that we were, in some sense, eternal. 
but eternity belonged only to the mountain. So you grew up in the shadow of the mountains called Bucks Peak in Idaho. Describe for us what your childhood was like. So it was, there were beautiful elements of it. The mountain was really beautiful, for example. My mother was an herbalist and a midwife. And when I was a child, that had a kind of magical quality. You know, she could heal in a way that to me seemed like a magician. And um, it was adventurous. My dad was telling us that there was going to be this apocalyptic event, possibly a war with the federal government. We were canning food. We were getting ready. And it was, um, that was exciting, even if it was a bit scary. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think I, I, I didn't experience it in, as, as fear so much. I thought we were going to be fine. We had 10 years of food. It was everybody else. So I was, <laughs> I thought they should be a little worried, but we're actually, we're going to be good. Um, we didn't go to school because my dad didn't believe in public education. We didn't go to the doctor ever because my dad didn't believe in doctors or hospitals. So we had a kind of isolated life. I didn't have a birth certificate till I was nine. I'm not 100% sure of my birthday. Um, so it, it was a different kind of life. And yet it did have these kind of beautiful elements. And as I, as I grew up and grew older, I mean, a lot of what I was writing about is there was a way that I experienced my childhood as a child. And then you grow up and you have to decide what you think of that as an adult. Yeah. And there's also the complication of wrestling with other people around you who you love for, mm -hmm. that, for that narrative, for your own narrative. And, and, and do you have a right to your own interpretation of, of the past and even of the present? And um, so, but that, that is how I grew up. And then, of course, I, I went to university when I was 17. And that was the first time I'd set foot in a classroom. And things started Did to change. Hear that? She went to university at 17 and was the first time she ever stepped into a classroom, having not ever been to school. So I'm going to get to that. You know, I think many people, uh, do you all remember Y2K? Yeah. Back in 1999, when it was getting close to the new year, 2000. Do you remember what you thought? I thought, well, maybe the computers aren't going to work or something's going to crash or something. And there was a small panic when the you know, that was going around. People thought their computers would fail or systems would fail. But you guys at your house, everybody at your house thought it's the end of the world. Yeah, well, for my dad, it wasn't Y2K. It was like, we had Y2K every year for my whole life, yeah. you know? So yeah, we were worried about Y2K, but Y2K was one of, you know, probably 15 times in my childhood that dad said, this is it. And then it wouldn't be anything about, well, the next year will definitely be it. And it just, it was really continuous. But was so something we about the, the turn of, the, like, the new millennia was coming, and it's 2000. I remember you described it. You all are sitting there. You're watching the clock. You're waiting. Yeah. You're waiting. I think I just, What I did you actually happen. think was going to happen? I thought the power would turn off. I thought the water would stop working. We'd, we had generators. We had all this food. We had fuel buried in the field. And I thought, we're going to need all this. And this is the moment when we're going to need all this. And I was 14 at that time. And I had just, I'd gone out into the community a little bit for the first time in my life because it had been discovered that I could sing. So my dad, who normally didn't like us spending a lot of time outside the family, had let me go be in these community plays. And so I'd started meeting people outside my family for the first time. And so for me, Y2K was this weird experience of thinking, I, I kind of like these people, but then also thinking... It's a shame they're all going to be wiped not, out. Not only that. I like them. No, a little bit Won't of that. We'll see y'all January 1st. 
but even more hostile, thinking this, this person that I've met, this is my first friend, his name was Charles, I remember thinking, he's going to come to our house and try to take our food. Like, as soon as this changes, this person who seems so nice is going to be dangerous because he's going to be hungry and we're the ones that are going to have food. So there was always that have a lot thing of peaches. We had a lot. An excessive number of peaches. Yeah. Yeah. And applesauce for some reason. But there was, it separated you from the people that you met, I guess. Because so what happens that night in particular? I know there were many others where your father has said the world's coming to an end, Y2K, we're only going to be the ones left, and then nothing happens. So what happens? You go the, the next day, you wake up, and it's like, oh, didn't happen. I mean, I remember that night my dad was watching. We'd gotten a TV that year, which was weird. We'd never had one. And he's watching The Honeymooners. Uh, he loved that show a lot. And he's watching The Honeymooners, and it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I decide to go to bed because I just gave up. Like the power's on and the water's running and it's, it's, it's over. And I went, I remember I went to bed and I looked at him before I left. He just seemed, he seemed childlike for maybe the second time in my life. I looked at him and he seemed childlike. But also I remember feeling a little bit of frustration at God because I felt like he's been this faithful servant like Noah and you've denied him the flood. I remember feeling almost let down about it. Uh, in, in a weird way. I mean, I, I was 14. I was still very much seeing the world the way my father did. So what's interesting, I think, to those of us who've read it, raise your hands, those of us who've all read it. Hello. What's interesting to us is that that wouldn't cause you to question your father, that you question, like, God, why'd you do that? Instead of like, well, Dad, you're wrong. <laughs> I think it might have been the first seed of it, but I think... The world that you, when you're a child, whatever life you have, whatever world is built for you, that's the only world you've ever lived in. Correct. And you have no way to really evaluate. It just seems normal to you. And so I was 14. I'd never been to school. I wasn't getting any other perspectives. I had the one perspective, my dad's perspective, and whatever he said was pretty much the only point of view I was getting. So I think I was getting to the age where I was maybe ready to start questioning a little but I was still in a pretty isolated state. You know, one of my fundamental beliefs is that you become what you believe. And as a little girl growing up on Buck's Peak, what were the fundamental beliefs that defined you? Um, interesting. Such an interesting question. I, th I suppose I had the beliefs that my father had. I don't think there was a lot of difference between his mind and my mind and his perspective on things. And so what were his beliefs? His I know beliefs he was patriarchal, about, he ran the About the, the end of the world, a lot of patriarchy. Um, I, I had completely taken on board his beliefs about doctors and hospitals. I thought if I took so much as an aspirin that my children would be deformed, you know, that kind of thing. And I believed all these things. And, and importantly, there would be moments when I would have a little bit of a dif difference of opinion. And I always just assumed that I was wrong. Because I mean, his, uh, his mind overpowered your own. Because his mind was, yeah, much stronger than mine. Can you describe your father's um, beliefs about the roles for women and men in the world and how that shaped your belief as, as a girl child and as a woman? He definitely had traditional ideas about women and he had really strict ideas about modesty. Um, I think my dad, it was 
a lot more tame though than it would be in some of my in some of my brothers because they're being raised in that household and then they also take some of that on. So my dad definitely had women aren't ever supposed to work and you have to wear clothes that are they cover the ankle and pretty extreme modesty ideas. But then my brothers, one of my brothers in particular who I call Sean in the book would take that a lot further. And I think had a a real hostility for women that would make my relationship with him really dysfunctional. So even when you had, I think this is before 2000, just before 2000, you just mentioned, you had ventured out into the world a little bit and you were allowed to be a part of, you know, you were allowed to sing. And at some point you were allowed to be a part of a dance class, but you weren't allowed to wear the dance costumes because they were immodest and they changed the costumes to yeah, wear like long t-shirts. The dance t-shirts. teacher made it like an enormous uh, gray sweater, like a giant. So she had had like leotards and like pink chiffon and then she had to tell all these little girls, this Christmas we're dancing in giant gray sweaters, <laughs> <laughs> which they didn't like so much. Uh, but my dad still thought it was immodest because of course it didn't go to the floor. So it, 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 didn't, it didn't go down. Far enough. No. Yeah. So you started to believe what you were told about what it means with all that modesty. I would say I always believed it. I think I started to disbelieve it almost. I think when I was a, I would say my trajectory was very much believing everything my parents told me. And then having slight questions when I was a teenager, but it really wasn't until I went to a university and just started experiencing an entire different perspective of the world. And even though I was still fairly uh, radical in my beliefs at the university, there were things I was learning about that made me stop and just question everything. I mean, I learned about the Holocaust when I was at BYU. I raised my hand and I asked what the Holocaust was. I'd never heard of it before, which is not really something I recommend doing. Uh, if any of you were thinking about it, uh, don't. Um, because, of course, the, the other students in the class, they heard that as a denial. They heard it as anti-Semitism. They heard me say When you asked the professor when in I class. When I raised my hand and said, hey, what's that word, Holocaust? What is that? And he, they heard it as a denial of the Holocaust. Like, what is this? And I very much meant, what is this? And uh, so there so were So I guess if you hadn't like heard that. of the Holocaust, you really hadn't heard, like, a Martin Luther King or the <laughs> Civil Rights Movement. Or, no. Weirdly, no. I'd heard of slavery, but I don't think you'd love the version of slavery that I heard. Uh, but I had heard of it. And then, no, nothing about the Civil Rights Movement. I remember when the professor started lecturing about Rosa Parks, and he said that she had been arrested for taking a seat on a bus. I understood that as him saying that she had been arrested for taking, like, stealing the seat. Like, I thought she'd stolen it. It was just a misunderstanding of, like, take a seat versus to take a seat. And to me, I had no knowledge of the civil rights movement. I had no knowledge of anything after slavery. I, it just made way more sense to me that she would be arrested for stealing it. It never would have occurred to me that there would be a time in my country where, you know, in the living memory of my mother, who I thought of as a young woman, that an American could be arrested for sitting down. I still defend my interpretation as making more sense. You know, as a, 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 an African-American reading the story, when I read that you'd never heard of the Holocaust, the first thing I think about is, okay, so 
what were y'all saying or thinking about black people in your house? Um, or were y'all not even thinking about black people? I think a lot of that. I think a lot of white people don't think about black people. I think that thinking about the world from another person's point of view is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And I think it is what an education is, really. And the thing we don't know is, or we don't ever acknowledge, is that respecting other people is actually kind of the first step to respecting yourself. And if you can't have empathy for a life that's different from yours, you're not going to be able to look at your own life from different points of view, which is what you're going to need to do, really, I think, yes. to make any change. I found it disturbing. I found it disturbing that for a period of time in your life, your brother Sean called you the N-word, used the N-word to describe you, to say, hey, bring me that, and then use the N-word. No, he did. You, you weren't even sure what the word was. You know, it's, you can't absolve yourself too much in a way I think I must have known. I knew that he called me that. I worked in the junkyard, and I would get black on my hands, and I would brush my hair out of my face because it was windy, and then he would call me that. And I must have known uh, on some level. I don't I mean, think I And you knew can... it wasn't a compliment. I knew it wasn't a compliment, and I knew to what he referred to. I didn't know the history, I get. I mean, I had no knowledge of... I don't know if I just never thought about it. But I can't absolve myself completely. There was a whole period of my life where he called me that, and I would smile and laugh and think it was fine. And then I went to BYU, and I took this class, and the idea that I had about slavery was completely different from what I was shown in that class. Because your idea was? I had read this terrible book that my dad had in the house that basically said slavery was a terrible, really onerous, difficult institution for the slave owners, you know, like really hard on them. I don't defend What book was this. that? <laughs> um, I, I missed that one. It's called The American Founding, and we had that book. And it's the only history book I really read. And mm -hmm. again, I can't absolve myself completely. I read that as a kid and thought, okay, fine, and just plowed on with my life. And it wasn't until I got into that class that suddenly I thought, oh, this is... This is different than I thought it was. And then that was shocking. And then the civil rights movement was shocking because for me, it wasn't just that the civil rights movement happened, but the date. I remember that date when he first put it up on the screen and he said, you know, 1960, 1963. And I thought, surely you mean 1863. Like, weren't we dealing with this like 100 years before? And how is this still happening? And um, I think realizing how bad things had been and how recent it had been. And stories like, not just Rosa Parks, but the really hard stories, like the Emmett Till stories, which I think are the stories that for, for white people are less in their mind. It's always so much more comfortable to tell the stories of triumph and stories that have a nice ending. Oh, we immortalized her and it was all fine. Uh, and we don't like as much to talk about the really hard painful ones, but for me, when I went and heard those stories, I then went home, and I'm working in my father's junkyard, and the same thing happens, and my face, because I've got oil on my hands, and my brother sees me, and the same thing plays, the same tape that played a thousand times in my life, and I had always responded casually to that, and suddenly, it really hit me, and I, and he had meant that word, I think, uh, as a kind of to hold me in place, he'd meant it, I think, to remind me that I wasn't good, you know. 
And strangely, every time he said it that whole summer, I just remembered that class and remembered the experience of learning about history and how my family was just one little family playing out a role in this conflict that we were either willfully ignorant of or accidentally ignorant, but it didn't necessarily matter. We were still, I ultimately decided we were foot soldiers in a conflict that we either didn't understand or didn't want to understand. And, and that was something I felt But by this I time you want. understood that the use of the word, your brother calling you the N-word because you had gotten, you know, your skin had been darkened by whatever the work you were doing in the junkyard, you understood that it was meant to demean you and belittle you as that's what the word is intended to do in its usage. I understood that about me, but I think I more understood uh, the historical role of it. And I think at that point in my life, if I'm being honest with you, I was comfortable being demeaned myself, but I was uncomfortable with the history of that word. And I think it, it was an evolution. Uh, I do think learning to think about why other people shouldn't be treated a certain way is a, is a step that you take on the way to learning that you shouldn't be treated a certain way either. So it's almost the other way you said it. I think I was, I was comfortable with him using language like that about me. I was not comfortable with it once I understood it. Understood the depth of the word, what it actually meant historically. So you had a complicated relationship with your entire family, but particularly it seemed with your brother, Sean. So when you're around 15 years old, he returned home, he'd been away, and um, this is where your life began to take a dramatic turn. Can you tell us about this complicated relationship? Yeah, my older brother. Um, he was a complicated person, as you said. He could be really kind, he could be really insightful. He saved my life a number of times. In the junkyard, he saved it. He saved it when we were breaking horses together. But he also could be incredibly cruel, manipulative, controlling. Um, he had a self-hatred of himself that he would just, he could really make you feel the way about yourself that he felt about him, about it himself. And then I think a lot of times that manifested as violence or in insulting words or you know emotional abuse and a lot of violence. Yeah, he called you a whore for the simplest things. He called me that, sometimes joking like, and sometimes when he was angry. It was, again, I was comfortable with it. I mean, this is a, a strange thing to say, but when I was at BYU, this was the university I went to when I was 17, I was trying to figure out, I knew I wasn't emotionally healthy and I knew I'd been damaged. You know, that's, I remember thinking, I was constantly aware that I'd been damaged in some way. But I, I didn't know what was the difference between me and the other women I was starting to meet. You know, these kind of mainstream, normal, cheerful Mormon women. And I was living with them. And I, it would have been my freshman year. I'd been telling myself for a really long time that I was okay because nothing my brother did affected me. Nothing he could do or say had no effect on me. And I think it was realizing that... Um, Actually, that was the difference. My friends that I was meeting at Brigham Young University, if someone called them a whore, they would cry. And I wouldn't. I was completely cut off from my own feelings. And it, it took me quite a long time to figure out that all these things that my brother was doing, that them not affecting me, that actually was the effect they were having. Just the being turned off from myself and the just shutting down. Numbing yourself. Yeah, So I think. when did you realize that you were in an abusive relationship with your brother? When did you realize that, it, that that was just abusive? 
I think I would realize it one minute and then the next day deny it. I mean, it was a really, I, I had a really unstable understanding of that relationship. I would say right up till, um, till I confronted my parents about it. And initially they believed me, my mother especially, initially she believed me and then um, later they decided when my dad didn't believe me, they both announced that I was lying and ultimately possessed. And even then there was a whole couple of year period, two years maybe, Sometimes I would think I was crazy. I really did. I just thought, well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't so bad, and maybe, it, maybe it's okay. And I'm overreacting. And um, what's interesting about it is that, as the reader, those of us who, every time you would then, after you, you first had that first outrageous moment with him, every time he would come into the room or you would be with him, none of us trusted him, did we? We'd say, what are you now going to the movies with him for? He'd say, you want to go to the movies? And you'd say, yeah. And then you'd end up hurt again, dragged in the street. You talk about that moment where you are being pulled out of the car and he is trying to humiliate you. But you write on page 199 how strange it is when you give people power over your own life, right? Yes. I think I, I wrote it, it was a journal entry I wrote when I was 16, or I wrote, um, it's strange how you give the people you love so much power over you. Yeah. Because I think my brother, he had defined me to myself, and I don't think there's a greater power than that. When people convince you, I mean, I have a theory, I think all abuse is, is foremost an abuse, uh, I think it's foremost an assault on the mind, and if someone's going to have an abusive relationship with you, they really have to invade your reality and they have to distort it, mm -hmm. and they have to change how you see yourself and, and, and what you think happened, and they have to have this almost kind of mind control. And my brother had that over me. Uh, I'd grown up in a household that had violence in it, and I'd had this relationship with him for many years, and it was, to an extent, normalized for me. And even when I started to resist it, I was not confident enough in saying, I, this isn't all right with me. I really, w I would just fight with myself about it almost as much as I would fight with him or my parents. Page 196, images invade my mind of me on my back, arms pressed above my head. Then I'm in the parking lot. I look down at my white stomach, then up at my brother. His expression is unforgettable. Not anger or rage. There's no fury in it only pleasure, unperturbed, then a part of me understands, even as I begin to argue against it, that my humiliation was the cause of that pleasure. It was not an accident or a side effect. It was the objective. I think what you read about that, that passage is, there's a war going play, taking place even when you read that um, you know, my brother, a month before that incident happened, my brother had attacked me in our house and he grabbed me by the hair and he dragged me down the hallway and he shoved my head in the toilet. And he did this in front of a friend of mine. And when it was all over, my brother came to me and he said, that was just a game and we were having so much fun and next time we're having fun, you should really tell me if something, if you're not having a nice time. I had no idea and you really need to speak more clearly next time we're having fun. And I said, oh, okay. And I, I believe that, because I wanted to. It's a lot more pleasant to think that you maybe just didn't speak clearly than to think that your brother's assaulting you. I was eager, I would say, to replace his understanding of what had happened with my own memory. And then a month later, um, this altercation happens in a parking lot, and it was much worse, and it was much more um, 
much more violent. And after it was over, I went home and I wrote that, this journal entry. And it was the first time, I think, that I just wrote what had happened. And I wrote that I'd been frightened, and I wrote that I had been in pain, and I, I wrote that I would have torn my brother apart in that moment if I had been able to because of what he was doing. And then when I was writing that entry, he knocks on the door, and he comes in, and he says to me, um, oh, it was just a game, and I had no idea that I was even hurting you until we got back to the construction site, and I saw that you were limping and that your wrist was cracked, and, you know, next time we're having fun, you really need to make sure that you speak clearly and, and, and tell me if something's wrong. And then he left, and I was sitting there, that passage you just read, and I had this journal entry I'd written, and I had this whole other narrative, this whole other way I could look at it. And I think it was the first time probably that I didn't know what he'd experienced. Maybe he had thought it was a game, but I knew what I had experienced, and I knew that I had not been having fun. That was not the experience that I'd had. And I think that moment where I left the two narratives, I left them both on the page. I left his, and I left mine, and I let them both be. And that's what he thinks happened, and this is what I think happened. And I don't need to be a memory fundamentalist and claim that I have the absolute truth, but it was important to say, that's my view of it and I'm not gonna change that to accommodate you or make you more comfortable. Like, that's what I think happened. That was a big moment. You write often, too, about needing to be invincible to the abuse. I found that interesting, that you felt like you had to somehow stand up to it. And I know in this gathering, there are a lot of women who've experienced similar things because our na national statistic is that one out of four women are, uh, are, are, are battered. You were a battered woman, not in a marriage, but in a relationship with your brother. Did you even recognize it or did you not recognize it until the moment you just told us about? Did you even know that it was abuse? You know, it's kind of funny. I, I don't think I did. I remember when I was 15 or 16, I saw some movie at my grandmother's house. And, um, and I remember actually having the thought, I wonder if my relationship with Sean is abusive. I remember thinking those exact words. And I decided that it wasn't. Why? <laughs> um, Why with your head in the toilet? Uh, I, you know, here's the thing. I think because the depictions of abuse that I had seen in films were so straightforward. Like what? I just think that, that, that stereotype of a man and a wife beater and he's drunk and he's always terrible. And I had a brother who 95% of the time was wonderful and loving to me yeah. and was important to me. and was the only adult in my life who was taking a whole lot of interest and looked after me. And I was willing to let go of the 5% of the time because I thought, well, he's not a bad person, and I thought, and he struggles a lot himself, and he always feels bad after, and I, I just, the classic. idea that all I had. All classic now, you all know. All classic. Yeah. But the idea that I had of him didn't fit the stereotype I had in my head, so I discarded it, and so when I wrote the book, it was. Even when your wrist is broken, and your head is in the toilet, yeah, and even you're then. bashed up, and you're being dragged on the street, even you then. can tell yourself it's something else. Yes. I, I, yeah, I well, think you know absolutely. how that works, because if somebody is bad to you all the time, you want to escape it. The only reason it works with anybody who's being battered or mistreated is that they're nice to you some of the time. 
and but, you're always yeah. hoping for that some of the time. And the thing that was so interesting to those of us who've read it is that we could see, we could always see, it's going to show up again. It doesn't matter what he does, if you're riding the motorcycle, if he takes you to the movies, if he's not, it's going to happen again. But it seems that you could never see it. Yeah, and I think the fact that I couldn't see it with my brother, yeah, I, I think we have an incredible capacity to just see what we want to see. And the yeah. thing about my family is the love was real. I wasn't tricked into loving my brother. I actually loved my brother, and I think he loved me. And the same is true with my parents. The love was real, and I think that sometimes maybe our ideas about love are really simplistic, and we, we think of it... As, a, as something that fixes everything, or if the, if the love is real, then you, then you definitely have to stay, and the relationship mm -hmm. is great because there's love in the relationship. And I've, I've almost developed this bizarre idea that maybe the only way to respect love, really respect love, is to respect its limits. Yep. And respect that it doesn't give you the power to change other people. And you can love someone. That's why you can love someone and still choose to say goodbye to them. Because it's not necessarily a question of whether you love them. It's a question of whether they belong in your life. Amen to that, sister. So on page 189, you say that what's important, you write descriptively about how some victims of abuse grow up to expect cruelty and need it. And that after you started school, you were unable to actually accept anybody's positive reaction to you, that you somehow craved the cruelty. Yeah, I think it was painful for me, actually. You say I could tolerate any form of cruelty better than kindness. Yeah, I think because it, the gap between who I thought I was and how I thought of myself and the way that people would treat me when they treated me well was really excruciating. It was really painful. Uh, whereas just being treated badly was actually not that painful. I was completely shut off from my own feelings. Because you're comfortable with pain. So I was very comfortable with it. With pain um, and chaos, because that's where you came from. Yeah, but you're being treated well, nothing made me feel more like a whore than someone treating me well. You know, that word that was in my head that my brother, nothing made me feel that gap uh, so strongly as being when someone was nice to me. And I really had to trade out that self-conception. And it took a really long time. You know, it wasn't easy. I think it's possible. I don't have that problem now. You know, the book reads like an epic journey. So many times your life was in danger, either in the junkyard. I mean, so many things happened to you all. We couldn't keep We up. weren't OSHA approved, <laughs> no. Your brother, Sean, so many, happened to any, so many times you come this close to not making it. And you always did. Everybody gets patched up. Nobody ever calls 911. People are burning and falling out of, off of things and getting hurt and car accidents and their heads are swelling in the basement and you never call 911. Yeah, well, we didn't believe in it. Doctors were going to, you know, they were trying to kill you, by the way. You didn't know, but they yeah. were. <laughs> yes. So... Um, when you look back on everything that happens, what kept you going and not succumbing to all the pressure? I don't remember ever thinking of not keeping going being an option until I became estranged from my parents. I think that was the first time I, I confronted them about my brother. My mother believed me. And I had this incredibly healing conversation with her uh, on chat actually, where 
she said to me, you know, really hard but important things where she, uh, she was really being hard on herself for not having put a stop to it. And I said to her, oh, you know, it's not, it's not your fault, basically. You've got this head injury, and then it's not your fault. And she said to me, no, I'm the parent. I should have looked after you. That's my job. And until she said that, it was a strange thing. I never had any idea how much I needed to hear her say that until she said it. And then I realized there was this kind of weird thing that happened when she admitted to me that she hadn't really been the mother to me, that she wished she'd been. There was a lot of healing for me that happened. It was almost like she became that mother for the first time because I realized, well, she wanted to be a better mother. She wanted to look after me. The thing with my mother, though, is um, there's kind of two versions of her. There's what I think of as my mother, and then there's what I think of as my father's wife. And they're not the same person. They're not even remotely related. And so when my father decided not to believe me, my mother followed, and we became estranged. That, I think, was the first time. Everything else, um, it was just my life, and I never, I never thought very much about it in that critical way of stop going. What do you mean stop? Like, there's, you can't stop. And I think that was the first time I, I just thought, I've been working really hard. I've been trying to get an education. I'm getting a PhD. Here I am at Cambridge or Harvard. I think I was at Harvard. And, and why? Like, none of this means anything to me. The thing I want, I can't have. Because what I wanted was my family, and I wanted a healthy family. So this is what is, I think, um, why I tell everybody you should just read it, no matter what's going on in your life. You're this kid who'd never been to school. And then at some point you decide you're going to take the ACT test. At what level were you reading that you thought you could do that? So I was lucky with the reading. My family, because you had to be able to read the scriptures, my family were very literate. So we were taught to read to pretty high standards. We could read the Bible and the Book of Mormon. So I was taught to read when I was very young. But math was a real issue. I didn't know any math, really. My mother had taught me... I think long division she might have taught so me. So when, when you say you could read, you could read at what level? Were you reading at like an eighth grade level, a fifth grade to, level? I never read them. I read the Bible really well. I didn't read a lot of other books. But luckily, the Bible is hard to read, <laughs> actually. like uh, uh, So I think I was reading at a, at a high level, but only because I was, I mean, when I started reading normal books, it was like, oh, this is cake. Like, this is, <laughs> I totally get this. Uh, yeah, no, I think I read at a really high level because reading was important to my family. I think literacy, you really have to have, even with literacy, though, uh, I mean, I had never read a science book. I'd never written an essay. I'd never taken an exam before. You didn't, I, I think I crawled out of algebra with a C minus minus. I crawled out of algebra with a C minus minus. And so you, who's never been to school, is going to get a book on algebra and trigonometry, and you're going to teach yourself algebra and trigonometry and take the ACT. It was not a good year. It was a really bad year. What would make you think you could do that? My family, you could say they're confident. Arrogant might be a better term. Yeah. Uh, no, we have that. My dad has that. He has this insane presence. I mean, he's just... I also think my parents had given us, if there's one thing I'm really grateful to them for, um, they definitely had raised us with this idea that we could learn things, that our education was our responsibility, is something that we could do. And if we wanted to learn something, we should go learn it. And I think they took it a bit far. 
but that fundamental thing that they would say, my, my mother would say this to us all the time, that you can teach yourself anything better than someone else can teach it to you. So had you been homeschooled up to a point? It was erratic, I would say. My mother uh, started out, I think, intending to homeschool the kids, and then she had seven kids, and then she was a midwife, and then she was um, an herbalist, and I, just by the time I came along, for me and my brother Richard and my sister, there wasn't a lot of school. I mean, when I wanted to... Because you were working all the time. Working in the junkyard. I was working for this man at a nut factory down the road. My mother was a midwife. It just wasn't... It just didn't happen. And so there was... I remember, I remember being taught to read. I remember being taught how to do some basic division. And then after that, there just wasn't, I mean, the books weren't in the house, so you couldn't, when I decided to learn algebra and trigonometry, I had to go buy them. And I know my brother Tyler also had to buy them. So there wasn't really. So how old were you when you decided, I'm going to go to college? I think I would have been around 16. Mm -hmm. Yeah around that age. And I, it was a lot of, I mean, a lot of it was my brother Tyler who had, my, my dad had been more extreme when he was, as he got older, you know, so when he was younger, some of my brothers had actually gone to some school and Tyler was one of those. And so he'd gone to some school, he'd even done some high school. And then he's just this genius freak who taught himself trigonometry, taught himself algebra and went to college. And he's the one who came back when I was 16 and said, this is not a good place for you. He knew what my brother Sean was like, and he just, he witnessed something and said, you've, you've just got to get out of here. You have to do what I did, and you can. I did it. You can do it. I didn't do it as well as he did. Uh, we should be clear, but um, I survived that test. Yeah, barely, but I did. And so, you got yourself into Brigham Young University. You're in college the first semester, and you're with all these Gentile girls. Yeah, I thought of them. My dad called people who weren't like in our little way of looking at the world Gentiles, which was everybody except our family. Because the first time, it's convenient. <laughs> the first time it's you weird. saw someone in your in your um, your dorm room wearing spaghetti straps, you thought what? I thought she was like a Jezebel. I thought she was. Yeah, I mean, these are Mormon women as well. I mean, there's not a lot of immodesty going on. But, you know, Mormons have a different standard than my dad. He had a much further standard. Mm -hmm. So my, you know, normal Mormon would wear a tank top in her house, maybe, you know. But for my dad, that was, there was no question. Yeah, of that. there was a time, I recall in the book you write, you were working for him, and it was so hot, and you had on a T-shirt, and you rolled up the sleeves, and your father came along, and he pulled the sleeves down on the T-shirt, and what happened? Well, we were just, we were fighting about it, essentially. I mean, I think it was probably one of the first kind of willful things I did with my dad. I was rolling my T-shirt up so that it was hot, and then he would yank it down and say, this ain't a whorehouse. And then we would kind of do that five or six times. And it was maybe the, maybe the first time I ever just really stood up to my dad, which is a very small thing to stand up to someone about. It, it's not a huge flag to plant. But I think... Um, yeah, there was an inch of that, of just saying, this is my body, and I'm going to take control of all two inches of this shoulder. <laughs> like, all of I these, am going to roll up my sleeves, all of Dad. All two inches are mine. Yeah. 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 So often throughout the book, you write about the thoughts in your head, about actions and decisions you struggle with because they were against your father's teaching. So you say that you knew that your, your learning was unnatural. So this knowledge, like so much of, uh, of uh, my self-knowledge, you said, had come to me in the voice of people I knew and people that I love. 
all through the years that voice has been with me, whispering, you say, wondering, worrying that I was not right, that my dreams were, remember this, that my dreams were perversions, that voice had many timbers and many tones. Sometimes it was my father's voice, you said, and more often it was my own. So in your everyday life now, in your planning, do you still hear those teachings, your father's voice? I think we all do, and that's what's deceptive about the ideas that we get from other people, is they feel like there are ideas. They feel like, you know, in my dad's version of history that I learned, that didn't feel like his version of history. That felt like history. Uh, I did not experience it as particular to his point of view, and that's why I think history became so important to me because one of the things I realized when I learned about the Holocaust was, okay, it's possible for something on that scale to happen and for everyone else to know about it and for me not to know about it. And that's insane and frightening. But the next thing I realized... Were you shocked I, at how ignorant you were? I was sh completely shocked at the depth of my own ignorance and the possibility yeah. of that. But something I learned from the civil rights movement was that that actually happens to everybody. And we all learn a certain version of the past. And right. like the best historians of the civil rights movement have told us about these concepts of historical memory. And that you can have something happen and two communities will remember things in a completely different way, yeah. you know? I mean, I think, I, I said this a minute ago, but I think there's a reason that for a lot of white Americans, Rosa Parks is so much more comfortable than Emmett Till. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's a, it's a fact of human life. We always remember the good things we do for other people and the bad things they do to us, and that makes a disconnect. Rosa Parks still in that seat. Sorry? Yeah. Rosa Parks stealing that seat. Yes, like it's, it's so much, it's a much more comfortable story for me to tell. Um, but I think becoming aware of the fact that so many of the ideas that you have, they're not the way it is, they're just the ideas that you have. And there's another way to look at it. There's another way to look at other people's lives, which is important. And there's another way to look at your own life. Like the view that your own life, the life that you're living, does not have to be the only life that there is. It's not the only life that's possible even for you. And I, I do think it's that ability to have different perspectives, different points of view. It, it's crucial to having empathy and respect for other people, but it's also crucial to having empathy and respect for yourself. Like, they, they, they function together. On page 304, you write, everything I'd worked for all my years of study had been to purchase for myself this one privilege, to see and experience more truths than those given to me by my father and to use those truths to construct my own mind. I'd come to believe that the ability to evaluate many ideas, many histories, many points of view was at the heart of what it means to self-create. If I yielded now, I would lose more than an argument. I would lose custody of my own mind. This was the price I was being asked to pay. I understood that now. What my father wanted to cast for me wasn't a demon, it was me. My parents, you know, they came to Harvard. They, my, one of the things that they had told themselves to explain why I said what I'd said about my brother. Yeah, I say she got herself into Harvard too, yes. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, she went to Brigham Young, then Cambridge, then Harvard. Okay, <laughs> that algebra was working for her. I never actually was that good at algebra. I was studying history by then, thank God. Uh, no, but my, my parents, one of the ways that they tried to understand why I had said these things about my brother that they just could not deal with 
was they decided I was possessed and that I had said all these things because I was possessed by the devil, which if you think the way my parents think makes perfect sense. And if you don't, it doesn't. And um, so they came to Harvard and, they, and my dad offered to give me this blessing, which was kind of like an exorcism. And there was a moment that I was, a pretty long moment, I was very tempted by that where I thought, I can just recant everything. I mean, it was the easiest way out ever. I just say, oh, right, the devil made me say it. I take it all back, uh, and I could have my family, and I really wanted that. And I didn't take the blessing, but the reason was just because I felt like what I was being asked to do was trade out my father's memories, his whole idea of reality for my own, and I wasn't... I just wasn't able to do that. It wasn't a trade that I could make. I had my own ideas now that were different about history, about the present, about everything. And it was not really possible to go back to a time where his reality was the only reality I had access to. Which is a really hard thing to do because there's a belief in our culture, not just our culture, I think many cultures, that family is everything, that it's the first tribe and the last tribe, that family is alpha and omega, that you're supposed to put up with all the shit in the world. <laughs> yes, I said shit. <laughs> you're just supposed to take it if it comes from a family member because it's your family, you know. Um, and you said something in an interview that I, I was really struck by, its power. And this is for everybody in the room who's watching and anybody who's watching who needs to hear it. You said, you can love someone and still choose to say goodbye to them. You said, you can miss a person every day and still be glad that they're no longer in your life. I think y'all are clapping because y'all know that's the truth, right? And I think that for a lot of people that's a contradiction, that if you love, then you're supposed to put up with it no matter what, and that if you, you know, are missing them, then you can't also be glad that they're gone. But, I mean, I think there's such power and wisdom in that. I think there was a long time for me, I thought because I loved them, that meant maybe I had made the wrong decision or because I missed them and then I would second guess myself and think, oh, because I missed them, it must mean that I made a mistake. And it, it took me a really long time to figure out that, yeah, love is just love. One of the last things that ha happened between me and my father, the last time I saw him, he came over and he gave me this really awkward side hug and he said to me, um, I love you, you know that? And I said, I do. That has never been the issue. And I always knew my father loved me. Of course I knew he loved me. And I don't think my dad did anything that he did from a lack of love. Uh, I think there's a difference between intention and effect or between the way people try to love you and the actual way that that dysfunctional thing can manifest in your life. Uh, but no, I don't think that love is the issue, and I think we do love a real disservice when we make it about control and power and changing people, and that's not what it is. You love people. You give them that for free, and, and then you decide whether that's something that you want to have in your life, and the alternative is to say, well, I'm going to change them, and then I'll have them in my life, and that's not love. That's not what love is. That's not what it does, and that's not the power that it has, so I... I, I would say with my own family, I love them now. I'm estranged from half my family. I love them very much, 
but I've accepted the fact that I need them to change to have them in my life, and whether or not they change is something I have no control over. And so the love, thank you. Yeah. So the love has to be separated because I can't control them. I don't want to have control over them. I love them, and that has to be separated from whether they change, and that's their own decision. And you write that every time you return to your father's house, in your mind, you were still kind of that 16-year-old girl, and that your final transformation, you say, was the one that allowed you to actually break free from your family, uh, occurred when inside your mind, you stopped being the daughter your father raised and became your own self. I think for me, it comes down to being able to conceive of a different thing than the life you have in front of you. There's a, there's a scripture that I really like. Um, it's about faith. It's my favorite scripture. I loved it when I was Mormon, and I love it, and I'm not Mormon still. I still love it. And it's Hebrews, I think it's 11.1, 1, and it says that um, faith is the substance of things, things hoped for, for, the evidence of things Thanks, not church. seen. Yeah. And Church people! Church people. church people in here. And I think for me, there was one of the things that made it hard for me to let go of my family was not being able to imagine any kind of future or life that didn't have them in it. And I think that's what everybody does. We grow up in these families and we learn certain patterns and we think that we're all liberated and changed and then as soon as we get back in that situation, we repeat those patterns. Or worse, very often we have dysfunctional family relationships and then we go out into the world and we find people who will repeat that pattern yeah. with us. Some and people we, never leave it. Yeah. We attract those people. We, we, we repeat those patterns. And I think I love this idea of faith as, as a belief in a, in a better world, in a different world, in a different life than you've experienced, love that you may not have experienced yet. But to let go of what is and try to see what, what things could be, I think of as a really amazing intersection between faith and education because it's those two things together. It's the ability to see your life as it is and imagine a different life. So to be educated for you means what? I try, I've, I've written a lot of, I give talks occasionally now and uh, I, I, I have about five talks that all say in them, education is with a totally different <laughs> definition and I change all the time and one day someone's going to call me out on it but uh, I <laughs> wait a second I saw your other talk and you said education is um, I don't know and that's what's so great about it I think it's it's discovery it's your mind growing it's taking responsibility it's letting go it's it's holding tight I think it's all of those things but importantly it's it's having enough knowledge and perspective and empathy for yourself and empathy for other people to make, a dis to make decisions so that you can do all of those things that you need to do. When you were applying for college, you wrote uh, that if God wanted you to go to college, that you would score high on the ACT test. Or if you scored low, that would mean God was trying to punish you for even applying. Do you still no, hold I, God accountable? I for <laughs> God, if I pass the test, it means you want me to pass the test. If I don't pass it, yeah. No, I'm not superstitious yeah. uh, in any way, and I, I kind of move away from ideology in all of its forms now. I don't like anything that if you think one thing, you have to subscribe to all these other beliefs. Um, so you don't consider yourself Mormon anymore? No, I'm not at all. I just hold on to that scripture because I love it. Uh, no, I'm not Mormon. I haven't been for a long time. So 
for me, I think that these concepts are beautiful. Where are you in God? Where are you with the whole God? Um, is it weird to say I don't, it doesn't, I never think about it. It defined my whole life, I would say, for years, and whether God was angry or mad or wanted me to do this or wanted me to do that, or what did he want me to, and I, I, I don't worry so much about it. I, I try to worry more about my opinion of myself and whether I'm doing right by other people. And I assume, I, I'm a big fan of John Stuart Mill, he's one of my favorite philosophers, and um, I just try to live my life that if there is a God, and if he is, he has to be a loving being, because that's the only form of God I would accept, um, then, then I try to live in such a way that, that that would be acceptable, and I don't worry about it. How did you kept, catch yourself up on, how, how, how did you catch yourself up on so much pop culture. I know I didn't. You, you didn't. Like, okay, so you, you I didn't, knew who you were though, so I feel like I'm doing did okay. You? Good. I was right d during the period where you guys didn't have any TV or anything. It's not like I were watching the Oprah show every day up there on the No, mountain. no, that no, never happened. Didn't think so. Um, <laughs> not, not in that house was it going to be on. No. Were you aware of Michael Just ja the honeymooners. <laughs> <laughs> the honeymooners. Were you aware of Michael Jackson? Uh, no. Were you aware of Princess Diana? I think when she died, uh, I remember my mom saying something about a princess died. I remember that. Okay. Had you heard of O.J. Simpson? No. Hadn't heard of O.J. Simpson. Did you know who the Kardashians were? Uh, recently, yes. Recently, okay. Um, does pop culture... This and interview's taking a very interesting turn. <laughs> <laughs> no, just... Okay, does, does pop culture and America's obsession with social media and fame seem ridiculous to you? Um, yeah, I never experienced this, the obsession with fame. I mean, I never was... I never was anywhere that I would have seen a magazine or be even remotely aware of that as a thing that yeah. people had. So I wouldn't say it seemed ridiculous to me because I never experienced it at all. Um, I moved to New York recently and I've seen a bit of it then. Uh, and yes, it seems pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we saw on your website that from here, you're traveling to Idaho and that you're going to be doing a talk at a writer's workshop. Will you see your family? I'll see half my family, which I, my aunts and uncles I see always, but my immediate family, um, only half. Yeah, and so the family's still divided. What do they think of the book? Um, I think it's pretty divided, you know. I think if you read the book and you were to make a conjecture of how everyone would respond, you would be right. <laughs> really? Pretty much. There's a couple surprises, but I think broadly speaking, yeah. Yeah. What has this process of writing a book, being a bestseller, now being where you are in your life, taught you about faith and possibility. Interesting. Um, I think uh, I'm not that much different from other people, and so that there are things that I imagined, if, oh, if I had that, then my life would be sorted and better and fixed and everything would be better. And I think what I've been amazed by is, oh, all these wonderful things have happened and we've sold all these books and it's, doing, it's going so well. And at the end of the day, you're still, um, you're still yourself 
and you like the people you like, and you like the things that you like to do, you still like to do those same things. And um, I think it is, I think what I have learned, I suppose, is that there is this kind of intractable, untouchable thing that is you. And the trick maybe is to keep the rest of your life still enough so that you can listen to it and be aware of it and not, not get so busy chasing all these other crazy things. And that can be true even if the thing you're chasing is in the past. Um, I think that there were a lot of years for me where I was holding on to a lot of anger with my family. And I have a theory about anger. I think anger has a role to play. I think it comes from your brain as a self-preservation instinct to get you out of bad situations that are not good for you. But I think you can hold on to it too long and it can become it can become defining of you. It can become something that you think you need. And um, something I had to learn and through writing the book and then through thinking about, well, now what? Now that all this stuff has changed, is trying to think, which of my feelings even do I want to have in my life? And do I, what is this anger doing for me? And, and do I want it? Do I need it? When is it useful? And when can I just let it go? And writing the book for me, the writing of it and the publishing of it is a whole other can of worms. But... Is, yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask you. How did you come to actually then write the book? Because it's one thing to live it, and then in, another t thing to decide, you know, I'm going to make this a book. Uh, insanity might attribute for a little bit of that. Uh, my, uh, I don't know. I think I wanted to write it. I felt really alone when I was, when I lost my family. I think estrangement is one of those things that there's such an intense stigma around it that even people who've gone through it, especially public figures, it, they don't really want to talk about it. And I understand that really well because I remember having this thought um, when I first became estranged from my parents and for maybe a year, I remember thinking, like, how, like, how can I believe that I'm a good person when I know that my mother doesn't think I'm a good person. And the, the sense of shame that that created in me, I just thought, if anyone finds out that my mother thinks that, how could they ever trust me with anything? I mean, how could anyone think well of me when they know that my own mother doesn't think well? She's supposed to love you no matter what. And I think I felt so alone and so uh, frightened of people finding that out about me for so long that when I finally stepped out from underneath that shadow, I just felt like, oh, what would have really helped me is someone saying, um, you know what, this happened to me and, and it's okay. And there's a life after and, and it can be a life that you want and, and you can find that way to believe in yourself. That's another way to think about faith is um, when people that you love or the people around you don't believe in you but you still believe in yourself, I think that is an act of faith. And it took me a long time to realize maybe I don't, maybe I can believe in myself even if she doesn't. But I guess I just felt so isolated that um, I thought I'll write this story and then I thought I'll make it a novel because I definitely don't want anyone to know it's me. And then I had two problems with that one. No one would believe it because it's a little crazy. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and if then, it was a novel, we really wouldn't believe no, it. No, I don't think anyone yeah. would buy it or believe it, you know, buy it in both sense of that word. And then I think the other thing I thought was just... What I needed was a face. I needed someone who was willing to say, this happened to me. And a, a theoretical fictional character 
wouldn't have been wouldn't have been as helpful for me. And I also decided to write it when I was young, which people think is a weird decision because there's a convention that you write a, a memoir at the end of your life and you're looking back and you say what everything means. And I didn't feel like that was appropriate because uh, a lot of the book is about estrangement. And one of the things that is hard about estrangement is that you don't know how the story ends. And you have to wake up with that decision every day and not know what the future will be like. And it feels different, I think, being estranged at 65 or 75 than it feels at I'm 32. That feels different. And I, I wanted to write something that I could have given to myself to say, hey, look, here's a, here's a story of, of, of a set of circumstances and decisions that I made. And I think stories, they exist so that we read them and we, we judge people in the, in the more positive sense of that word, where we say, what do I think about what you did? And we use that to decide how we feel about our own decisions. So I offer this book not to say to anybody, oh, here's a blueprint for how you behave if you might become estranged from someone and you should do everything I did because I handled it perfectly. I super didn't. Um, but more to say, here are the decisions I made. And you can, you can judge me and you can decide if you think I should have done it differently and you can use those judgments you're making to decide how you feel about yourself and your own life. And I, I just wanted that so desperately when I was going through it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks, everybody. Tara Westover. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>